You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Nicole Gutman, who is a school intervention consultant in Stony Brook, New York, and by Mary Kay Irwin, uh, who's a director, the director of school health at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. We're going to talk about a very important topic, which is the medical, psychosocial, and educational challenges children face who are being treated for cancer or who are cancer survivors. I have to say, we obviously put so much emphasis into the medical care of children and adults with cancer, and our goal is to cure cancer, especially blood cancers whenever possible. But so much else changes in a cancer survivor's life, and so this is a particularly important topic. Nicole and Mary Kay, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. So let's start up by talking about some of the challenges that children face who have just been diagnosed with cancer and are being treated. I'd like you to give us a perspective on the challenges that children face who've been diagnosed and are being treated for cancer, and a little bit of perspective about different phases of development for children and how the challenges may be different. Sure. I think challenges for children with cancer can really be categorized a couple of different ways. We see in our work that there's physical challenges, psychosocial challenges, and academic challenges that kids with cancer can sometimes encounter. Of course, there's accommodations that we'd recommend for all of those. And then we also see uh, variability uh, along the cancer journey. So what children tend to struggle with at the point of diagnosis is oftentimes different than the challenges that they incur in the midst of treatment, and then even yet different for children into survivorship. Let me ask you to say a little bit more about that in terms of the initial challenges, middle of treatment, and then later on. Sure. I think some of the initial concerns at the point of diagnosis really are around safety and just some of those physical concerns. So parents often wonder, is it safe to send my child to school after they've been diagnosed with cancer? And how can the school nurse keep my child safe in that environment? Psychosocial challenges that young kids often face really include, you know, I'm going to look different and I'm afraid to see my friends and how might they treat me if I am bald or if I'm swollen from steroids, for example, um, and are they going to treat me differently? And then academic challenges, you know, broadly are really rooted in a fear of missing school and getting behind in work and can I keep up in my work and what are my teacher's expectations of me going to be? So those are just some broad strokes of challenges. I don't know, Nicole, would you add to that? I think you pretty much summed it up. As we go from maybe the younger children into more school-age kids who have a better understanding of their illness, they may be more worried about what their outcomes are going to be. And certainly 
there's a, such an upheaval and disruption to their lives and routines that they find very unsettling. Children love routine. And trying to provide as much normalcy as possible and reestablishment of those routines and school is an enormous part of that. It's a huge part of their routine and it signals that things are going to be okay by having the adults around them being interested in them continuing to pursue school. And then later, as uh, we talk about adolescence, as Mary Kay said, body image is a huge concern. It is especially so for the adolescents. No teen wants to seem different from their peers and everything about a cancer diagnosis and treatment makes them different from their peers, and it's compounded with the isolation and not being able to interact with their friends, a better developmental understanding of what is going on with them, what their diagnosis means, and possibly even fear of death. So it becomes more complicated as they get older. And again, school is that one sanctuary for them of normalcy. What are some of the warning signs that a child is having a hard time adapting to all this? Because it's, I mean, it's clear what a huge stress and change a cancer diagnosis is. So what should adults look for? Talking about the social emotional concerns, you know, looking for strong emotions such as anxiety and depression or anger, really becoming very, very concerned about falling behind in schoolwork, even when teachers are providing accommodations and leeway and the child is still being super focused on that. Concerns, again, like Nicole said, about reactions of um, from their peers and wanting to stay home in lieu of going out when it is safe, just wanting to stay isolated, I think are some of the warning signs. And let me ask the same thing from the parents' point of view, just as you've worked with parents, what are some of the warning signs that parents are struggling or, or siblings? I'm glad you brought up siblings because they're sometimes overlooked considering everything that's going on in the family when a child is diagnosed. Oftentimes, there's so much focus on the child who is sick that parents only have so much bandwidth to deal with all their different kids' needs, and maybe the child is having to stay with other family members while parents are tending to the child with cancer in the hospital, or they may have to be with friends, and that may mean that the siblings schedules are also disrupted. Maybe they're not getting help with homework that they need. And they also may be fearful. They may show signs of regression in their behavior depending on their age. They may feel angry or jealous that all this attention is being given towards their sibling and not to them. Or they may act completely aloof to any of this, depending on the age, and that could be an age-appropriate response. Advice for parents in that situation? Yeah, sure. We tell parents to, you know, intentionally have some conversations with their support systems to ask for people to support the siblings specifically. Most often when a child is diagnosed with cancer, there is a lot of 
people from one's community that really come out and say, how can we help? And one of the most constructive things that people can do is use that outpouring of support and direct it toward their other children. Mm-hmm. So asking people, you know, would it be all right if you support my child in their homework two nights a week? Mm-hmm. Could some of you help with transportation to the siblings' extracurricular activities so that they can maintain some level of normalcy? And making sure that you take time out to talk to the teachers of the siblings so that they understand what's going on, they have up-to-date, accurate information, and that they know that those siblings are going to need, uh, very likely need some extra layers of support. And, and it sounds like some of this, if done sort of preventatively, may help uh, obviate some of these troubles. Couldn't agree more. I think that the biggest piece of advice is clear and open and routine communication. As a family and a a child with cancer goes through this journey, there are many ups and downs and changes that will occur. And being intentionally proactive, whether it's on behalf of the child with cancer or the siblings, you know, really can avoid a lot of issues. I would also extend that intentional communication to the professionals working with the family. So oftentimes in a clinic appointment, it's not uncommon for care providers of pediatric patients to ask, how are things going with school? And oftentimes asking that is not enough. So there's a spectrum of responses in my experience. So I had several parents say, oh, things are great, things are fine. And when in actuality you ask a little bit more detail, things really aren't fine. Um, I think you've got some parents who are so happy that their child is alive and doing well that their perspective of fine is you know, the school is letting their child do next to nothing or there's some problems going on at the school that seems so insignificant because the parent is so focused on the the medical condition. And then sometimes they don't even know what supports would be available if they were educated more on the educational system. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where, you know, when that provider asks a parent, how are things going at school? You know, sometimes you have parents, oh, it's just awful. There's all these problems going on. And when you ask a little bit more, you can do some coaching around letting the nonchalant parent know that it's really okay to expect a little bit more from that school or here are some things that would be really helpful because you want to make sure that you don't completely walk away from the educational experience. And on that other end of the spectrum, the parent who is extremely paranoid and feels like it's a mess when in actuality it is not, you know, the provider can do some coaching on around reasonable expectations and use other patients' experiences that the majority of our patients are able to return to school safely. Here are some recommendations. So again, it just comes down to that communication and asking a few more questions other than just that singular question, how are things with school, to make sure that the multidisciplinary team is really getting a good picture of what's really happening on behalf of that patient around school. What are the challenges? I know both of you have tremendous expertise in in terms of uh, school and um, the challenges that children have in that environment. What are some of the issues for schools, the challenges that they have in providing for children who are being treated for cancer? I think one of the biggest challenges is that the school is fearful about having a child with cancer return to their building. They're fearful for that child's safety at times. They are fearful that they don't have the resources to adequately support that child. It depends 
a lot on what part of the country we're talking about, what kind and size of a, a school district, or whether it's a, a public versus private school. It depends on if the student is being treated at an institution that has dedicated school intervention or school reentry staff that can assist with that transition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I really think that we see a range of preparedness in schools driven by a couple of factors. You know, school districts that have the distinct advantage of being near a pediatric institution with a dedicated school reentry program, after interfacing with that program over time, really become well-versed in the creative accommodations to help kids throughout their journey, in contrast to schools that have never had a student with cancer before or do not have a dedicated program. In the years I've spent doing this work, I always tell people I've got three degrees in education and nowhere along my continuum did anyone say, you know, here's an educational philosophy or here's how we're going to teach you how to be a really great teacher, but we're going to dedicate some time here on how you accommodate children with medical issues specifically. It wasn't even mentioned in my preparation. And so it is not uncommon that you find teachers and administrators and even school psychologists that are not completely up to date or aware of how to accommodate children with medical issues, let alone kids with cancer. So I think that there's a, a range of preparedness. And I also think that you can sort of bucket these issues for school districts by some liability, as Nicole was just mentioning, uh, related to fear. But also schools most often have limited resources. And so for children with cancer, you know, they require some additional resources sometimes. So that is a struggle for schools. In addition to some of the rules and school policies, they were not typically contemplated with kids with medical needs in mind. Rules and policies are generally drafted in a school setting for kids who are developing typically or for children that would have special learning needs, but rarely with the unique needs of kids with chronic and serious illness. Um, and then the last thing I would just say is that sometimes children with chronic illness and serious issues from a health perspective really inadvertently challenge some things related to school performance. So, for example, if a child is absent frequently because of having to be inpatient or even coming for outpatient appointments, that's a challenge for schools because they have to report their absenteeism rate, and then based on that absenteeism rate, their school is oftentimes received a grade. Um, another area that it ties to school performance is state assessment. So students in school have to take state assessments and schools report performance of their student body in state assessments. And when you have a child who is sick and not able to take it at all or not perform up to their capability, these are just some of the things that schools are trying to battle, like how do we make these accommodations for a child with cancer? Um, because there are no guidelines specifically outlined for kids with medical needs as there are with kids with, for example, special education needs. And I have to say, this has been sort of fascinating for me, looking at that perspective, that the schools, even if well-intended, really may just not know how to do it, how to provide these special services. How are the needs of, I mean, if you were to be talking to a school counselor now, a school administrator, the teachers, how would you describe to them the differences between a child with cancer to a child that has uh, other physical special needs, cerebral palsy or some other uh, physical disability, for example? 
think it depends greatly on the specific diagnosis and the age of a child. But what my past experience has been in trying to educate educators about their students who have cancer is we would have a, an in-service meeting with the staff of the school and specifically talk about that child's diagnosis and that child's specific treatment and what it meant for them specifically to be safely in that building, whether it meant uh, that special protection needed to be taken for the child's implanted Mediport to infection control concerns, whether a child, uh, whatever kind of specific physical accommodations that the child would need, whether it's some physical assistive device like a wheelchair or maybe they need preferential seating to see or hear better, to also addressing specific educational and learning needs. What kind of accommodations does my child need to be back in the school, such as having extended time on tests or having a modified academic day or being able to demonstrate their mastery of a certain skill differently than the other students in the classroom are doing. So it really depends on a lot of the specifics that that child is experiencing. And I think a good, comprehensive, thorough school reentry plan speaks to those very individual needs. I agree uh, with everything Nicole just said. I also think another thing is just how does it differ is just the evolution. So there's the emotionality that a patient and a family experiences that changes over time from diagnosis to, you know, middle of treatment or if they have a relapse into survivorship that isn't the same with some of these other special education diagnoses and mm-hmm. and then other changes like cognitive late effects. So you may yeah. have a child that, you know, pre treatment was doing quite well, and then years post, we start to have the emergence of cognitive late effects. So one of the things that we really recommend when people have access to it is actually working with a neuropsychologist to have a neuropsychological evaluation. So they do, neuropsychologists are trained to really understand the relationship between a disease process and its treatment protocol and how that manifests into learning profiles and behavior changes in a way that school psychologists are not trained to do. So school psychologists are obviously fantastic partners in this work. It's just that that next layer of training that a neuropsychologist brings to the table can also be really a wonderful tool in guiding parents and teachers on how to effectively support children post-treatment. We've talked some about some of the physical challenges and how the environment in the school can can either help with that or make it worse. We talked a little bit about educational challenges. What are some of the psychological and emotional challenges for children and their families? And again, keeping in mind that this is this wide range of very young children to teenagers. Well, initially these families feel like they're alone in this experience. Nobody else is is going through the same kinds of things that they're going through. You're child has been removed from school, from their peers, from their friends. And the same is true to some extent for the parents and the siblings that they also have some removal from where they're typically getting some of their emotional support. They're not able to spend as much time with their families and friends or be at work and forget the uh, 
uh, we'd have to have a whole different conversation about the financial implications that right. having a child with cancer places on the family. But their world kind of shifts from family and friend and community-centered to this focused more on the hospital community. So that that's an adjustment for everybody. And it's a real challenge for the people on the healthcare team and the, the professionals at the school to try and maintain those connections for the student and the family back to their school community and to continue to treat the child and the family that as they are still a member of their school community, even though the child might not physically be there, that is a, a great contributor to a successful transition for the family and the child going back to school. I would also add expectations around that. So one of the things that um, I've seen over and over again is both parents and teachers struggling with what are reasonable expectations in the midst of treatment. Most frequently in the beginning, you see teachers easing up on their grading. So we're giving A's when if the kid was healthy, they might be getting C's or B's. Reducing work, even though they haven't been asked to reduce work, being, you know, overly accommodating. And we see parents who are so distraught that they're giving their child everything that they need. And that's a normal human response. And in fact, I'd probably do it myself. So it's not something that is to be shamed of. It's just to be aware of because what we see oftentimes these journeys are long journeys, is watching parents and teachers uh, try and reestablish a balance later. So when that type of lowering of expectations and lack of behavior management goes away, trying to regain footing so that we can really engage the child throughout the journey with reasonable expectations and maintaining behavior and not giving them everything they want is something that we see. And it's almost if you knew that in advance, you could sort of temper that a bit so it wasn't so hard to regain your footing afterwards. And then the last thing I would mention is just so um, important is stressing normalcy. So most of the time in the beginning, it's not normal, but most of the patients that I have worked with over the years really yearn for a normalcy. They get tired of being treated differently and they want so desperately to be treated like their peers. And so normalcy is, there's so much value in that in terms of how we interact with these patients and how we leverage school to provide some level of normalcy. How do the laws protect childhood cancer survivors or AYA cancer survivors as well? So there are several different laws that we can lean on for support. What I would say before you get into the laws is, going back to that bold standard of excellent communication, transparent communication, because most of the time people want to do the right things for kids. Mm-hmm. And when you start out, you know, with that in the forefront, then oftentimes you don't need the laws. But there's specifically a couple of things that we look to that provide a frame. One is the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which then provides some provision for the 504 plans in the American Disabilities Act and moving into the Individuals Disabilities Act, IDEA, and there have been revisions even recently. So becoming familiar with, you know, what are the rights of children in particular in public school settings, though some do extend into private school, is important. But what's more important is understanding what the needs of the child are. So when these laws, when you lean on these laws, what you really get down into is um, eligibility for support. And so What's more important than leaning on laws is just knowing what does each particular patient need and then what is the best means to get there. So 
we see some schools who can accommodate a patient's needs um, using an individualized health plan uh, because most of their accommodations are really needed from a physical health um, standpoint. And then some will use 504 plans to accommodate that, and then some will use IEPs. There is some accountability when we put these accommodations on a 504 plan or an IEP relative to everyone is stacking hands on a set of recommendations. We're signing off on documents, and should these not be followed through, they can be referenced again and reminded of people, and ultimately, if it doesn't go well, they can be used to hold people accountable. But the most important thing is understanding what is it that the child needs, how can we work with the school collaboratively to meet those needs, and then what is the most reasonable thing that people feel comfortable with just to document that and keep that organized. And I will just mention the one difference with the IEP, you really want to move, be moving toward an IEP when you're getting into the more significant academic accommodations. Mm -hmm. um, that is routinely where that type of document is really useful because that is the only document that does require ongoing monitoring of performance. And so when a child is on an IEP, teachers have to monitor the accommodations they're putting in place to make sure that the child is making gains. And so that process is really a nice one in terms of creating some checkpoints for the family and the schools to make sure that there is progress. But I have mm -hmm. seen all of these um, different strategies be successful for students. I'd like to talk for a minute about the AYA population. Adolescence is a time of uh, defining oneself and finding independence and getting ready for the next phase of life. So what effect does a cancer diagnosis have on adolescents that may be different than younger patients? Defining characteristics of adolescent years is the adolescent trying to exert independence and autonomy in their lives. And everything about being treated for a life-threatening or chronic illness and specifically hospitalization goes against the development of independence. They are subject to the policies and routines of being in the hospital. Their behavior is restricted because of isolation and concern for infection, and they are having very large life-impacting decisions being made. So I think the best advice I could offer for parents is to involve their child in this process, as many of the decisions and along the way in the treatment process as they can. Thank you. Actually, probably good advice for everyone. Let me ask you finally about uh, resources, because these are difficult challenges that children and their families and schools are facing. So what are some good resources? I am a resource called the Staying Connected Program that is available on the Leukemia Lymphoma Society website. So actually, the address is www.lls.org slash connected. And this program is a comprehensive resource that is really intended to prepare multiple stakeholders to support children and adolescents along the continuum of the cancer journey. So tons of great content for teachers and school nurses and parents and social workers. It's really a professional development um, opportunity that individuals can even receive credit for participating. But it's also just really helpful, I think, as a resource for parents because 
it is lots of content where actual survivors are sharing their experiences and physicians and school nurses. So there's a lot of resources tied to that as well. So I really encourage people to check out the Staying Connected program. Let's talk some about that time of transition when people who've been treated for childhood cancer or for an AYA cancer are now moving on to a different phase of their of their life and also their medical care. What can you tell us about transition? There's a lot of things to talk about um, as it relates to transition. You know, one of the first things that sometimes happens is that patients and their families are actually pretty nervous about entering into survivorship as they step away from that routine care. So, you know, I've seen so many wonderful things of my colleagues who can really provide that reassurance and support, letting them know that it is really okay to move into the survivorship space where care is not so regular. As it relates to school, moments of transition, I think of them in a couple of ways. One is when um, students are transitioning from different buildings. So, for example, from an elementary building to a middle school, from a middle school to a high school, especially when they are now transitioning and they are no longer in care. So they're expected to jump back in and have a completely normal life, and they may be interacting with a new school staff that has no experience with their previous medical history. So communication is is really important in those regards. Even a high school team, knowing that they are uh, working with a student who had ALL at five and six years old but may have some issues related to cognitive late effects even into the high school years, it's going to be important that that high school staff become aware of uh, what cognitive late effects are and what that journey has been for that individual so that they can appropriately support the child. And another really huge transition is is moving into uh, post-secondary education and understanding that this is when self-awareness and self-advocacy is so incredibly important. So, you know, the adults in these individuals' lives should really be shifting responsibility to the children themselves and adolescents. So moving away from the parent sharing the history with the schools to teaching the child or the adolescent to advocate for themselves. I'm a cancer survivor. I had leukemia, you know, back when I was six, and I have a few learning challenges, and here's how I learn best instead Mm -hmm. of needing the adults to say that on their behalf. And that is absolutely critical should these individuals choose to go to college because, for example, an Office of Disability Services at a college is not really interested in hearing that from mom or dad or even the physician. They want that that young adult to be able to advocate for themselves. And so preparing people for those transitions and letting the individual, the survivor themselves, know their journey and know what it is that they need to be successful is one of the best things that we can do to help survivors ensure long-term success. Absolutely. One last question. There's a lot of talk about post-traumatic stress disorder or stress syndrome. There's also, I, I think in terms of cancer survivorship, I like to think also about post-traumatic growth. Let me ask you about that in the children and adolescents you've been involved in and t- helped taking care of for years. Have you seen post-traumatic growth where, where people end up going a different way than they may have expected, but that it's really, uh, there's a lot of good to be seen and found? I personally have seen both in my experiences where there's post-traumatic stress and people have a hard time coming to terms what's happened to them, especially if they were younger when they were diagnosed and then as they get older and um, more emotionally aware and have a better understanding of what they went through, they kind of have that time of, whoa, 
this was really a significant thing that happened to me. And on the other hand, we've also seen what you described, like uh, people whose lives were so changed by this experience and who were positively influenced by the people that they met along the way or having this feeling of needing to give back who suddenly are interested in a career in nursing or even as a pediatric oncologist or a child life specialist or I actually know in, um, another patient of ours who grew up and decided to be a special education teacher because of the observations he had of his own experience of trying to transition back to school. Thank you all for listening to this podcast series. Uh, we today had a wonderful discussion, and I want to thank Nicole Gutman, who is a school intervention consultant in Stony Brook, New York, and also Dr. Mary Kay Irwin, who is Director of School Health at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So, uh, Nicole and Mary Kay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For more information on the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's professional development program, Staying Connected, please visit www.lls.org slash stayingconnected. Nurses, social workers, and educators can learn a lot, but also earn up to 6.5 continuing education credits for participating in this program. And for a listing uh, of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org CE. Finally, for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by going to 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.